All right, good morning to you. Uh, a couple of weeks ago on Facebook, I asked, when in your life, you know, we all, all have childhood dreams, like when did you realize you wouldn't be able to actually like realize that dream? Like for me, when I was in kindergarten, I wanted to be a football player in the NFL. I'm about 200 pounds too light for that, so that didn't take long to figure out. So I wanted to share with you some of the funny responses that people, um, that people said. One person said, played ice hockey in high school. I was the captain of the team, thought I was pretty good. I went to tryouts at my college, which was a Division I college. About 20 minutes into a scrimmage on the first day of tryouts, he got hit harder than ever before. I actually didn't fall down. He did. Okay, that's not the point. But I saw stars for an hour. Needless to say, I didn't advance to day two. So freshman year. This person said, senior year of high school, when the best college offer I got for soccer was one th- was a $1,000 scholarship for a one year to a $32,000 year university I didn't want to go to. Um, so that person didn't. This person said, I wanted to be a musician, but of course the world says stuff like that is super unrealistic. So my freshman year of high school, I instead wanted to be an audio engineer because I could still do music and that seemed like a real person job. Um, then even that started to seem unrealistic, so I chose a business degree. And so there you go. This one might be my favorite. Probably when I was nine and I played basketball in a rec, rec league, I scored on the other team's basket. And so that's good. Uh, this person who goes by the name, let's just say Brian Androsian because that's his name, <laughs> said, um, I loved music when I was younger and played bass with my friends but was never very good. A friend of mine who was in a band, that was really good, asked if I could sub in for their bass player for a show he couldn't make. And that's when it dawned on me that I'd have to actually play in front of other people. As an an introvert, my rock dreams were immediately dashed. And then maybe this one was also maybe tied for my second favorite. Uh, Somebody said uh, in in regards to being a professional athlete, you know, when did you realize you wouldn't be able to make it? And he said, birth, DNA. And so, hey, at least he knew from the beginning. But thanks for being with us. We're in week two of a series called Masterclass. It's a book in the New Testament written by this guy by the name of Apostle Paul. And so he's showing us how the gospel uh, impacts all areas of life. So this is the Masterclass on life. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Last week, uh, here's the the bottom line last week or lesson one. It was simply this, that your calling is based on who God is, not who you are. So your calling is based on who God is, not who you are, which basically uh, Paul's introduction is the first nine verses that we're splitting up in these two weeks. And so we're building off of that. Basically, God calls you to himself and loves you and gives you grace, not because of you, because of him. And so that being said, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, starting in verse 4 this morning, um, if you have a Bible, you can grab one out. If you don't, there's a black one somewhere around you, page 1011. And again, we're continuing this thought that God loves us and saves us and forgives us. And that's important because all throughout this letter, Paul is writing to the Corinthian church because they're doing a lot of things they shouldn't be doing. They're screwing up big time in certain areas. And so before he says, uh, here's what we need to work on, he wants to remind us that, again, we don't do this to make God love us more. We do this in honor and respect towards him. So here's what he says, <clears throat> verse 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. What we'll do is we'll read through it, and then we'll talk about how this applies to our life. It says this, I always thank my God for you because of the grace of God given to you in Christ Jesus. So what's happening here, Paul is thankful for them, even admits his frustration with some of the things they were doing it. Now, here's the thing. Paul's not like trying to be nice and gracious, like some false humility. Like we talked about last week, if you know Paul, he went around having Christians killed before he became one. So he, if anybody knows that God is gracious to us and to his people, and so he's saying, you've received grace and I've received grace, so let's walk in that uh, before we try to fix everything. And here's the thing that we know, right? Like if you've been forgiven, it's like it's after you have really messed up 
that is typically when you're more gracious with other people, right? Like when you've been forgiven or when you're humble, that's when you're nicer to other people. And so I was trying to think of a time, like when I was a kid, like when was a time that I kind of like messed up that I could share and not, you know, get in trouble, uh, that I could share. And like, and then after the fact, I was like, oh, I messed it up. And so um, <laughs> maybe I just want to share the story because it's funny. But in college, uh, I, uh, I was living with our friends. I think it was my junior year. And so we're all really good friends. And two of my friends, well, I have to give their names because it'll be confusing if I don't. Their names were David and Matt. And for some reason, they called me the provoker, which I'm like, what? Like, I'm a pastor, Harmony. I can all provoke. And just kidding. I love, I love to, like, if I figure out what frustrates you, like, I'll like to mess with you. And so anyway, so David and Matt, I would always get them mad at each like, jokingly, but I would always like pit them against each other and it was so much fun. And so, um, and so one day my friend David, he was, he, he would even say, yeah, sometimes he gets mad really easy. He would hate it when we would go into his room. So he would be like on his desk, on his computer. And literally I would just sit on his, on his bed. I wouldn't say anything. I wouldn't do anything, but just my presence in there, he'd be like, Dylan, get, get. And I wouldn't, of course I didn't get. I was like, this is fun. And so what he would do is he would he'd get his belt and he would like whip me and Matt until we left his room. And some of you girls are like, what? This is what guys do for fun. Okay. I trust you. Right. And the pain was worth just seeing him get so mad. So I would sit on his bed, and he'd be like, Dylan, get. And so it was one day, and Matt, our other roommate, 6'4", big dude, okay? And so David's like, Dylan, get. And I said, hey, Matt, come in David's room with me. And he's like, no. And so, so Matt comes running. He's like, boom, boom. Boom, big guy, right? And so David has, a, David has this conundrum. Do I get Dylan out or do I keep Matt from coming in so I don't have to deal with one of them? So he goes to his door and tries to close it so at least Matt doesn't get in there. And so Matt, like, stops him from closing it. I think Matt could have shoved him down if he wanted to, but he's having fun. And so there's like a six-inch gap between the door closing, and David's trying to push it closed, and Matt's just holding it. And so David goes around to try to hit Matt to like get him off. Can't see or anything. He goes, all of a sudden, bam, he punches him. Now, we're not sure like where he hit him, and I didn't think he hit him that hard. I thought he was just joking. So all of a sudden, David goes around, hits Matt. All we hear is the door closed, and then we hear a boom. And I'm thinking, oh, David, or Matt's just joking. Like, he's just, like, pretending like he got hurt so David will open the door and he can run in, right? And so I was like, oh, it's funny. And then, they, and then we hear, like, this groaning. I'm like, okay, that's enough. And he's like, like he's like, no, I'm bleeding. I have this blood. And I was like, oh, shoot. So we opened the door. David had punched him in the nose, like, hard. And so they're, like, an immediate, like, I'm like, oh, I did this. So, like, it was my fault. <laughs> Like, it was my fault, but it wasn't. So, like, me, that happened. They'll tell the, it's really sunny now. They're like, it was like a dog between my legs. Like, I got up from his bed. And I just, like, walked into my, to my room, and I felt bad, right? Now, I got, was, but it was, like, in that moment, I was like, oh, like, David could punch me in the nose, and I wouldn't get mad, right? Because I, you know, or Matt could, because I had David punch him in the nose, right? So, it was in that moment that I was like, you know, you could beat me up, and I wouldn't get mad because I, you know, messed up. So, I don't know if that has anything, but just the point is this. Like, when we screw up, we're more likely to give grace to others. And Paul's just saying, you need grace, I need grace, we all need grace. And so he thanks God for the grace he's given to them and to him. Verse 5, this is the grace that, he was, that, they, that they have been given, that you were enriched in him, enriched in Jesus in every way, so that you, even in the midst of your mess-ups and your screw-ups, you are still growing in Christ Jesus. And he's going to give them two examples um, that he has heard in, in ways that they are growing. He says, in speech and in all knowledge. Now, he's likely, because we know the context of this book, talking about the spiritual gift of speech, in other words, speaking in tongues, which we're not going to get into this morning, we will in the future, and the gift of knowledge. In other words, they're growing in their knowledge of Jesus, and it's causing them to love him more. So they're being enriched in these things, even if they're misusing these spiritual gifts a little bit, they're still growing in them. Then he says this in verse 6, in this way, the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. Now, here's what this means for us. That our lives, if you are in Christ, your changed life confirms your belief in the gospel. It's not the other way around. So in other words, I just want to say this as a side note as we're reading this morning, that our works are the evidence of our faith, 
not the precursor to them. Okay, so how we live and what we do are the evidence that we have been saved and redeemed and been given grace, not, the, not that we do good things and then God loves us. This is why James, another book in the New Testament, says faith without works is dead. It's not that your works save you, but it shows you that you have had a change of heart, even in your sin, even in your shame. It shows that God is doing something in your life and something in He's changing your life. And so the Corinthians, this is good news, okay? Because the Corinthians are messed up people, we are messed up people, but even in the midst of that, they are growing. And here's the thing about uh, faith, is that evidence, I, I want to say this because I think all of us can, can, can land on one side of the spectrum. All of us do. Either we can be too legalistic, which is me, that you better do this or do not do that, or how dare you, or we can lean too much on grace. That doesn't matter what you do. Like There's a middle line there, and all of us, I think, can tend to land on one side or the other. So if you land more towards legalism like I do, what I'm about to say may, may push against you a little bit, but hear me out. Um, I believe that the evidence of one person's faith could actually be a sin, or maybe not a sin, but the, 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 uh, it could be a, a showing that someone isn't growing in their faith. And here's what I mean. I'm not talking about the things in the Bible that God is clear about, do this or not do this. I'm talking the things about, ultimately, at the end of the day, Jesus is after our heart. And so I'm going to give you an example, a generosity example. I'm going to try to use math, which I said last week doesn't matter. So I might get the math wrong, but the idea is what's important. Here's what I mean by this, that it is more about where you are coming from than what you are doing that shows if you are growing in your relationship with Jesus. So let's take Jim and John, for example. Let's say they both make $100,000 a year, and they both give $5,000 in the course of a year. So they give 5% of their income, right? Um, on the surface, you would say, okay, that there's, they're being generous. They're giving some money. That's good. There's no difference between them. But here's why stories matter. Let's say Jim has been a follower of Christ for two years, and this past year was the first time he's ever given in his life. So he's like, the first year he follows Jesus, then he realizes, no, if I'm going to trust Jesus, I've got to trust him with everything, so I'm going to start giving. So he gives $5,000. Let's say John has been following Jesus for 30 years, and when he became a Christian, he knew he was supposed to start giving, and so he just started giving to kind of like check off a box on to say he did it. Now, I'm not saying John isn't saved or love Jesus. He does, but what does this show us? That Jim, even though they're giving the same amount of money, is growing in his faith because he's taking a step, whereas John has given, five, let's say, 5% of his income the entire time. He has never grown in his generosity, which shows he's never grown in his trust in Jesus when it comes to his finances, which again shows us, again, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that one person is saying they're both been forgiven. It's not about what we do, but again, it shows us that our works are the evidence of our faith. Are we growing closer to Jesus? Are we becoming more like him? And it's going to look different for different people, which is why we should never compare people who are even are, even are Christians. It's like, I can't believe they say they love Jesus and they're still struggling with this or they're still doing this. You may not know their story. You may not know what they have done to even get to where they are. So just as a side note, we need to understand that our works are the evidence of our trust in Jesus. We don't do those things and then he loves us. That's what he's saying. And that's what he's saying to Corinthians, that even in the midst of your struggles, you are growing, so it's confirmed that you have experienced the gospel in your lives. Verse 7, he says, so you're growing in this way in spiritual gifts so that you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, they're just growing in their gifting and their reliance on Jesus. Verse 8, he, talking about God, will also strengthen you to the end so that you will be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's saying he, God, not you, makes this possible. It's about what God has done so that if you are in Christ, he has taken all of our shame and our guilt so that you are blameless. In other words, that no one can throw an accusation against you because Jesus took it on the cross, right? Jesus took it on the cross. And I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where, you know, have you ever been in a situation where somebody, you, you messed up and someone took the blame for you and you're like, 
oh my gosh, this is so great. I was trying to think of a time when I was a kid. I was like, when was there a time when I kid, when I was a kid, when I got in trouble, which I got in trouble a lot, um, where someone took the blame for me and I couldn't think of it. And then I realized it's because I always blamed other people for things that they didn't do. So ain't nobody's taking the blame for me because they're already taking the blame because I'm forcing it, right? So here, so I found one time which like kind of fixed it, but kind of didn't. And I don't know why I remember this, but again, this idea of someone taking the blame for us is what Christ has done for us. I was in, I don't know why I remember this, but I was in first grade. And we were like paired up in like pairs of two and we like had to rotate to all these stations like for a couple minutes. I don't know what we were doing, but for whatever reason that day, my like paired person wasn't there. And one of the stations had these gold coins. I don't know if you remember these gold coins. They're chocolate, but they're like wrapped in gold. So they look like these like cold, they're like thin coins. And so as a first grader with no one next to me, what do you think I did with those coins? I ate them, thank you very much. I didn't like do, right, and I ate them. And so, and for whatever reason, the, the, the rotation after me didn't notice they were eating or whatever because they didn't say anything. So after like five or 10 minutes, the teacher, somebody finally says like, there's no coins here. And so she asked who ate the coins. What do you think I did as a first grader? I didn't confess. I didn't, why would I do that? I didn't say anything, right? And so long story short, she knows she's not gonna be able to find the truth from like 25 first graders, no way, right? So I got away with it and it was awesome, right? But here's the thing about Jesus. The thing about God is you don't get away from things that he does. He sees everything, which shows us how amazing his grace is, is because he sees that you ate the gold coins over and over and over again, and he loves you, and he gives you grace in the midst of that. This is what it means to be blameless. It's not because you actually don't sin or don't mess up, because in Christ, if you followed and trusted in him, he takes it all on our behalf so that we can be blameless when we meet Jesus face to face, and he will enter, let us enter into his kingdom, not because of us, because of him. And then he ends this section by saying this, verse 9, that God is faithful. You were called by him into fellowship with the Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Again, God is faithful. God saves us. God calls us to himself, and we grow in him, not because of us, because of the grace he has shown for us. So that being said, here's what we need to know this morning as we read this passage, that God is great, and you are not. Again, I talked about this a little bit last week. I know it's like 2019 and everyone's like amazing. God is great and you are not. You are not as amazing as you think you are. And look at all the things that just show, prove this point that we see in this passage. Look at all the things that Christ does, does for us, right? He gives us the grace of God. He enriches us. Uh, he confirms the testimony. He strengthens us. He makes us blameless. He is Faithful. God is the one who continually, over and over and over again, gives you grace, forgiveness, and mercy. He is great, and you are not. And here's the thing: like, it doesn't even matter if you believe it to be true or not. Like, even if you're like, I don't know, I think I'm pretty good. I think I've got everything figured out. Regardless if you believe it to be true or not, it's still true that He is the one that gives you grace, forgiveness, and mercy. So God is the one that gives you grace. He's the one that gives you mercy. Which means this: here's why this is important for us to know. Because God's faithfulness is greater than your failings. Here's why it's important to know that God is great. Because his faithfulness is greater than your failings, which means this, that it is not about you. It is not about you cleaning yourself up. It is not about you doing all these things in your own strength to try to impress your friends or try to impress God. It is about what God has done for you. It's about him being faithful, more faithful than your failings, which gives us encouragement, right? And a lot of times we don't understand this, right? And so as we grow in our relationship with Jesus, hopefully we're, we're figuring this out more and more, but none of us are perfect in this. Like I think all of us tend to think in some degree it's still uh, relied on us to play our part. Like I remember when I was a kid, and if, you've been, if, if you grew up in church and you've been a follower of Jesus since you were a kid, maybe you can relate to this. But there were probably 
500 times that I prayed to ask Jesus into my heart, like after I like, got in trouble. Why? Because I didn't quite understand and know. It doesn't mean I wasn't saved or I wasn't forgiven. I was, but I still hadn't fully understood that it's not about me. Now, again, when we fall short, we should repent. We should turn to him, but not in a way to like get us back in some right standing or good standing with Jesus. It's already happened when you put your faith and trust in him. But I had, I still kind of like, I knew it was about what God had done, but I still felt like it somewhat depended on me. So every time I messed up, I was like, God, uh, save me again, or God, forgive me, which you will forgive me again, but I was like, I had, felt I had to do this certain thing in order for me to be good with God. Well, we need to understand that he is faithful even as we fail. And because that is true, here is what we need to do with that. Here's what we need to do with knowing that he is faithful and that he is great and that we are not. If that's true, here's what we need to do. That we need to live in God's strength. We need to live in God's strength, not our own strength. What do we often, what do, we often do, right? Like, especially if you're a follower of Christ, um, when you, you've got a weakness in your life or a sin struggle in life, which is good for us to do, you try to find all these ways to stop doing it, right? So maybe you have like an accountability partner. Let's say you've you got a pornography issue, and so you put something on your, like software on your computer, which is great, or maybe you've got a spending issue, so you've got someone to help you hold accountable with your budget. Like we try to figure out all these things, which you should do, so I want to be careful. You should do those things, but we try to figure out all on our own. Like I'm going to do this, this, and this so that I'll stop sinning, so that I'll stop messing up. And what have we done when, when that's all we do? We've missed a very important part of what it means to follow Jesus. Here's what it means to follow Jesus. In John chapter 15, and you can turn there or you can just follow along on the screen. Here's what Jesus says. He's talking to his disciples, and he says this. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes, and he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken in you. So you're already forgiven. You've already received grace because of what I've done for you. Verse 4, therefore remain in me and I in you, just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine. Neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing. In other words, you are not strong enough without me. What is he saying here? That God's strength is found, and here's why we need to lean into him, by abiding in him. Just as a side note, that God's strength is found by abiding in him. You know, I'm not a orchardist, orchardist. I'm not a farmer, whatever the word is for that. So I might get the years wrong on this, but if you have an orchard, like let's say you have a, an apple trees, right? And after a year or two, the apple tree doesn't produce fruit. You would might assume, I mean, again, it takes time. It's not going to be right away. You might, oh, maybe it's just taking time for this tree to kind of get healthy, whatever. But after three, four, five years of nothing, what are you going to do? You're going to take that tree down because you're going to assume that it is dead. And what Jesus is saying here is that if you want to produce fruit in your life, what you need to do ultimately is abide and trust and seek after me and not in your own strength. That you should abide and trust and seek after me, and that is when fruit will be produced in your life. It's going to be different for different people. It's not going to be linear. It's not going to be the same thing for every single person. But instead of just simply focusing on all the things that you need to do to make sure you're a better person and make sure you make God happy and all these things, now ultimately the question is, are you abiding in him? Are you leaning into him? Are you following and trusting in him? Are you thinking that I've got to do all of this in my own strength? And here's why we need to live in God's strength, okay? Here's why. Because you are not strong enough on your own, right? 
you are not strong enough on your own. And regardless of what you think about Jesus, we all know this to be true. Like we would all admit that we have weaknesses. We have things that we wish we were different. Like even if you take the spiritual component out of it, we all have things that we wish that we were better in. And especially when it comes to following Jesus, if we were honest, we all fall short. We all sin. We are not strong enough on your own, which means that you need to abide and lean into him, not just try to set up all these structures if you want to see change and fruit in your life. And one of the ways, as a side note, one of the ways that God has made it so that we can abide in him better is through community, is through people, right? God is a relational being, and so he's created the church. He's created us to be with each other, to encourage and love and equip one another because we cannot do it on our own. That's why one of our values here at New City Church is you can't do life alone. So as, you know, as Adam said earlier, community groups are starting. I know we talk about it a lot, and I think the attitude for a lot of people is that's just nice, but I'm busy and I've got stuff going on. What you need to understand is that God created you, no matter extrovert, introvert, to be a relational being. So let me just encourage you as strong as I can, if you have not been in a community group before, to sign up for a group and just see what happens. I've experienced, even as a pastor in my life, when I'm in community, I'm loving Jesus more, I'm abiding in him more, and when I'm by myself, I'm not. So if you're not in a community group, let me just encourage you today to sign up for one, and or if you're a new follower of Jesus or you're not sure about this Jesus thing, a very easy first step for you is to start up for starting point, because it's already happening here on Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. It's only like eight or nine weeks. It's a very short-term commitment. And starting point, or if you're following Jesus and you just have questions about the faith, that's what starting point is. It's going to walk you through the fundamentals of the faith, who Jesus is, what does it look like to follow him. You cannot do that on your own. And I, and it is my, not just opinion, but I've seen it happen, that people that walk by themselves, they cannot, they do not follow Jesus in the way that they could if they were in community. Here's the thing about following Jesus, and he says this repeatedly. Yes, following Jesus is a private decision in the sense of like nobody can make it for you, but there is no such thing as a privatized faith. I know in our culture today, we're very individualistic. It's very about me and me and God, and no one else can speak into that. All throughout scripture, we do not see that. In fact, we see the opposite is true, that your faith is to be lived out in community, right? And to reject community is to say, even if you don't actually say it, is to think that you are strong enough on your own, okay? And so when it comes to, again, following Jesus, we just need to remember that we're not. And it's okay to be honest about that because that is where grace comes in. And I read this passage last week, and I want to read it one more time this week because I think it's really easy for us to look at Paul planting churches, being beaten, being starved, like this big ministry leader, all these missionary churches, be like, well, he's different. He's like superhuman. So it's easy for him to say, we need to understand, remember, he is no different than you and I. He's just leaning in the power of God in his life. Here's what he says in 2 Corinthians. It'll be on the screen, or you can just, or you can flip there. 2 Corinthians, again, he's talking, he said, he's talking about the grace of God. And he says this, therefore, so that I would not exalt myself, you know, because again, it'd be really easy for us to be look up to Paul and be like, oh, he's got it all figured out. A thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan. Now, we don't know what that thorn in the flesh was. It could be a sin issue. It could be a health issue. We're not sure what it was. Regardless, it doesn't really matter. But something was, God allowed something to happen in his life that he called um, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Why? So that I would not exalt myself. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it would leave me. So he over and over again asked God, can you fix this? Can you make it stop? And he didn't. Verse 9, instead, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Again, my strength is found not in your strength, but in my strength. Therefore, I will, mostly, or I will, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses. In other words, he's not going to pretend that he has it all together so that Christ's power may reside in me. 
So I take pleasure in my weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and in difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. For when I am weak, in other words, when I'm not leaning into my own strength and me trying to figure everything out, that is actually when I'm strongest because I'm abiding in him. And so here's the main point for us this morning. Here's lesson two of Masterclass, and that's this, that strength is found in the one who is strong. And spoiler alert, that is not you. Strength is found in the one who is strong, and so that is not you. One of the funny things about religion, or we'll just say Christianity because we're talking about Jesus, obviously we're a church, is that some people say that religion is a crutch, right? It's a crutch. It's for weak people. And you want to know what I would say to that? That is a hundred percent accurate. And the only difference between someone who's following Jesus and someone who's not is that you're both walking with a limp, but the person who's not following Jesus is pretending or doesn't, is not realizing the fact that they have one. That's the only difference, that you and I are broken and weak and need grace and forgiveness. And the question is, are we going to pretend like we don't need help, or are we going to pretend to our own shame that we do? Because everyone around you can see that you don't have it all together, so there's no point in pretending. That's what Paul is saying here. There's no point in pretending that I'm strong. There's no point in doing all these things. Why? Because God has given me grace, and so I'm going to lean in to him. Again, verse 9, what does it say? These are the, these are, this is what you are because of Christ. Again, he says this that God is faithful. You were called, to, called up by him into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Right? God is faithful. God is the one that does these things. And so you need to lean in to him. And what happens sometimes is that we get so caught up in trying to do all these other things that we forget that he's the source, not our own. I love the story of uh, you know Sherlock Holmes. You're probably familiar with Sherlock Holmes and Watson. He's the non he's a fictional detective who's like knows everything. The movie just came out. Apparently it was really bad, like it wasn't good, so I haven't seen it, but just if you want to know that, don't go see it if it was bad. Right? And so Sherlock Holmes is a detective and he has this friend Watson who's a doctor, super, super smart. And maybe you're familiar with the story, but one time, uh, one day or one night, uh, Holmes and Watson go camping, right? And after a lot of uh, liquid refreshment, they fall asleep, right? And so they fall asleep, and all of a sudden, Sherlock Holmes wakes up in the middle of the night. And so he digs into Watson. He says, Watson, Watson, wake up. What do you see? And here's Watson's response. I know you're not supposed to like read a story, but he uses a lot of big words that I can't remember, so I'm sorry. I have to read his response. And so Watson looks up, and he sees, he says, well, Holmes, I see a lot of stars in the sky. And because I see a lot of stars in the sky, remember, Watson's very intelligent. He says, here's what, that, here's what I see. Uh, astronomically, it tells me that there are millions of galaxies and potentially billions of planets. Uh, astrologically, I observe that Saturn is in Leo. Uh, horologically, I deduce that the time is approximately a quarter past three. Now, remember, he has a British accent, so he sounds even smarter than this. Uh, theologically, I can see that God is all-powerful and that we are small and insignificant. Uh, meteorologically, I suspect that we will have a beautiful day tomorrow. Why, Holmes? What does it tell you? Holmes looks at him a little befuddled for about 30 seconds, 30 seconds and says, Watson, you idiot, someone has stolen our tent. <laughs> What's the point of that story? That we sometimes get so caught up in trying to figure it out and looking at this, and we miss the main point that it's not about you, it's about Jesus. And the question is whether or not you will abide in him or in your own strength. Let me give you one more example. Um, I was listening to a podcast a few weeks ago by a really well-known pastor, and he said, and he was talking about you know goals and resolutions in the beginning of the year, and he said sometimes people ask him, like, how is he so disciplined? And he says, it's not that I'm disciplined, but years ago I decided, instead of trying to figure out all these things to improve myself on, that I would, because uh, really goals and disciplines are just habits, that every year I would add one new discipline to my life and so that it would become a habit. 
habit. Now, it's a lot slower progress to do it this way, but now I've been doing it for 30-ish years. I have all these disciplines, but I only did one thing at a time, so it built up. And one of, he was given a bunch of different things that he did, and he said one of the things that I did was I, I uh, said that I was going to, I, one of my disciplines early on was that I was going to read the Bible every single day, no matter what, even if it was only a, single, only a verse. And he said, because I developed this discipline, now I've read the Bible through, cover to cover, uh, fi- 15 years in a row. Why? Because I created a habit. And I was like, you know what? That's really cool. I want to try to do that. So I just like want to let you know, I've read the Bible multiple times. I've never read the Bible every single day over the course of the year. You get busy, you've got kids, there are days that you miss. And so I said, you know what? I'm going to do that this year. No matter what, every single day, even on Sundays, even on days that are message prep days, every single day of the year, I'm going to read my Bible no matter what. Can I just tell you, we're only 13 days in. I haven't missed a day yet. And I just, I feel different. Why? It's not because God is more pleased with me reading his word every single day, but by doing that, no matter what, taking time every single day, what is it doing? Is it reminding me to abide in him. And so let me just ask you this, like what can you, I'm not saying that's what you need to do, but what can you do to help you abide in him? Because remember, strength is found in the one who is strong. And this is the gospel, okay? This is the gospel that God came to save sinners, to save those who are weak, to save those who need forgiveness. He sent Jesus to be perfect, the perfect sacrifice on our behalf, not because we have it all together, but because we don't. And as we trust in him, we we receive forgiveness, grace, and mercy. So no matter who you are, no matter what you have done or will do, you need to understand that there is grace for you. And as we become more like Jesus and follow him, our lives do change, but our lives change because of him. We don't change our lives and then come to him. Again, strength is found in the one who is strong. That is why God came. And so as starting next week, as we start to look at some of the issues that the Corinthians and that we are dealing with in our lives, remember, God is not calling us to fix things so that we can put up an appearance of strength. God is calling us to lean into and to love him because that is when you experience life change in your life. Again, God is a strong one, so lean into his strength and not your own. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your grace and your forgiveness and your mercy. Thank you, even in the midst of the, of the times when we try to figure out everything on our own, when we try to uh, lean into our own strength, that even when we do that, there is still grace and forgiveness for us. And so my prayer is that we would remember that you love us, and we know that you love us because you came. And so while we, while we strive to know you more and to become like you, I pray that we would remember the way for us to do that ultimately is by abiding more in you in your strength. And so in the weaknesses and the struggles that we have in our life, um, God, I pray that we would lean into you in the midst of that, um, know that there is grace and forgiveness for us in the midst of that. And no matter if we've been following you for 30 years or whether we have questions and we're not sure about this Jesus thing, my prayer is that we would know that there is grace for all of us. No one's better than anyone else. Paul himself is saying, hey, look, I am the weakest of anybody. And if there's grace for me, there can be grace for us. And so my prayer for us as a church, and for those just kind of figure this thing out, they would know that they are loved, cared for, forgiven, and given grace. And that we would all lean into your strength and the sacrifice that you gave for us and not ourselves. And Jesus, I pray. Amen.